Frederick, welcome. Thank you. Before you and I start uh, discussing Dior at a level that will, you know, put uh, police investigations to shame, <laughs> uh, we have a, a minute and a half clip, I believe, from the film. I like this excerpt because to me it's uh, visually what I was trying to express with the film. It's all these hands around one dress. It's, you know, you often think that Raph Simmons is a designer, but really there are hundreds of hands um, and minds that create these clothes and that uh, it's a really a collaborative effort. So Raph Simmons uh, took over, is the, is the official title artistic director or chief designer? Uh, artistic director. Artistic director. Took over as the artistic director of Christian Dior, which is a house with great history. Or creative and designer. Creative designer. He was in charge of the design. I apologise for, for possibly not having the right title. So, it, in many ways, this feels like the greatest setup for the most expensive reality show ever, because he has eight weeks, which is far less time than normal, to put on his first haute couture collection and show. How, how do you become involved in that? Where did the idea for this documentary, because, I mean, it's a beautiful setup for a documentary. Was that your idea? Did they approach you? Did you approach them? It was a little bit of both. We, um, I met uh, Olivier Bialobos, at, uh, the head of communication at Dior, about uh, you know, six months before we started filming. And um, Dior was still looking for a designer, and the whole fashion world was wondering who it was going to be. And um, I, told, I'll t I told Olivier, um, you know, if it's going to be Raph Simmons, I'm really, really interested, because I knew that the combination of, uh, you know, Raph Simmons' sort of modernity and uh, forward-looking vision with, with a house like Dior that's really steeped in tradition, could, that, that was sort of the, the tension that you wanted in a film, something that really brings something new. And, um, and so I, uh, I waited patiently, and then um, finally it was announced that it was Raph. So I jumped on the phone and I called Olivier, and I was like, should I come to Paris? Should I... And he warned me, he told me that um, Raph Simmons was not very keen on the idea of uh, having a camera crew follow him you know, for, for two months. He was under a lot of pressure and he's notorious for not wanting his sort of private life uh, exposed in the media. So then I had to figure out how to convince him. So I sent him a letter and um, apparently he read the letter and he he agreed to one week. He said, you can come for one week and we'll see what happens. And um, so I gathered a team in like two days and flew to Paris to, to shoot. And when you see him um, on screen for the first time, that's when I see him for the first time, really. I had no introduction. But I, what I kind of like in retrospect that I meet him through the lens of the camera, that's, I think it says a lot about our relationship and throughout the film. And, um, and so we filmed this one week and we got to know each other a little bit. He would ask me a ton of questions about my favorite films uh, and try to get to know me a little bit. And I explained to him what, uh, what, how I would film and how uh, discreet I can become when I film. What, what is the answer when Raph Simmons asks you what your favorite films are? <laughs> Well, I, uh, I sort of cheated a little bit because I read an in uh, one interview with Raph where he said that he liked uh, David Fincher and I happen to love David Fincher too, so that's the first name that I gave. <laughs> and then um, 
I also said um, Todd Haynes, and he was like, oh yeah, I love Safe, and I, I really love Todd Haynes. And then I gave some, um, some names of uh, Asian directors that I like, like Wong Kar Wai or Tsai Ming Yong, and he didn't know um, some of them, but he, I think he sort of started to know that I was, you know, I'd, he was intrigued because I was not in, into fashion as much as I was into film. And you didn't even list really documentary makers. I mean, if you made no. your film like a David Fincher film, no one survives at Dior. <laughs> and you'll never know the resolution. Exactly. <laughs> but it'll be beautiful. <laughs> so, so you've told him your favourite films and you, yeah. you're getting to the end of the, your first week, your, your, essentially your, your trial week as yeah. the videographer. I mean, I could sense that he was warming up, but the way that I work, I'm always in the, in the corner, sort of, you know, I don't really interact with the subject that much, except at the end of the scene, but usually he has to go to another meeting. So, you know, we had, it's like um, we were sort of gauging each other, but not really having a, um, a lot of conversations. And I was a little bit sad because he hadn't said anything at the, uh, at the end of the week, so I was just packing my camera and, and leaving the building. And um, I ran into him outside, um, and he, he, he looked at me and he seemed surprised. And he said, well, why are you leaving? Um, and I said, well, it's the end of the week, I've, I've got to go back to, uh, you know, that's what we said. And, um, and then he said, but we're going to the archives, the Christian Dior archives tomorrow. You have to come and film this. And uh, so I, suddenly I had a big smile and I was like, well, I guess I'm doing this film. And uh, he's, you know, he's inviting me in his own way to, uh, to be part of the journey. And I think like without, without really discussing it too much, he, um, he saw that um, he was comfortable with my presence in the room. I think maybe in terms of personality, we have some things in common, so we, we, um, I think we got along sort of quietly. You mentioned you were heading off to the archives. There's a, a significant amount of archival footage uh, of Christian Dior uh, in, in the film. Talk to me about finding that footage. I mean, because you, you knew the story well enough that you knew that there were, you sort of spotted the echoes between how Raf was approaching his collection and Christian approached his first collection or the early days. How did you find going through the archives and how did you, how did you find that footage? Uh, well, I'm lucky because um, Dior has a very organized archive in Paris where they not only you know, keep uh, record of the dresses and buy dresses at auction, but they also have a, um, a record of all the film that Christian Dior was in and, and all the video. So they gave me that list and then I just had to um, go to the different archival houses and find what was there. The, the archival footage that, are, that really struck me the most were the ones where you, you could actually see Christian Dior. Because, um, not because he's so um, glamorous looking, actually it's quite the opposite. He's, he looks pretty much like someone who would work a nine-to-five job at a bank or something. He's, it does look a bit like the accountant sat down at yes, the... Yes, he, he does. He looks very unusual for a fashion designer. And um, not unlike Raf in a way. Raf doesn't look like he, he, um, he runs, you know, one of the biggest fashion houses. He, he looks pretty unassuming. He looks more like a, like a priest to me because he's always wearing, you know, like blue or dark navy blue and little white collar. And um, so 
Yeah, I was fascinated by the images of, of this man. And, and when I was watching it, I tried to watch it without the sound because, you know, you're in the, the, these archival documents, you always have this uh, little nasal voice who uh, comments on the action. And, but if you turn up the sound and you slow it down a little bit, then it becomes very ethereal and almost ghostly. And I was looking for that ghostly quality um, in, in the archival footage. You're quite restrained with the use of that footage. Was that, I mean, it, it is used beautifully, but only occasionally. Was that a case of that was what you had available? Or did you have to be restrained? Could you have put together a, a feature film just out of the archival footage? Yes, I, I just wanted to get a few themes out of the archival footage. The, I knew that the main story was really in the present. The archival footage and the past was, I wanted it to play a part in the present, but I really wanted the present to be, it was about Raf Simmons and it was about what he was going through. And I think um, as much as I could uh, use, you know, Christian Dior as um, an insight into what Raf was feeling, because Raf was obviously thinking a lot about the founder of the company and the, the guy whose shoes he had to fill in. And, and so I wanted to, um, to sort of bring that ghost, bring that sh shadow that he had to, you know, um, overcome. In terms of you've got access to Dior, you've, you're making a documentary. How do you maintain your independence? I mean, it must be very, you're, you're inside the building and they're providing the archival footage. Did you have assurances in place that you would be able to have creative control? Did you, did they have any sort of sign-offs? It was, um, well, the, one of the lucky things about being a French filmmaker is that the, the French law actually protects your creative control uh, as a director. So I knew from the very beginning um, that I would have that. And, um, but then, of course, you, you want to you wanna be sure that you have enough conversations with the people that you're making the film about so that they understand, you know, that you're not... They're not surprised at the end if you don't have a film that's not just like puff interviews with, uh, I don't know, celebrities, because that's not what I was interested in. I, and I was, um, I was keen on explaining at the beginning like what my film was going to look like, what my interests were. And, um, and I think they, they took that in and they, I guess it's somewhat, um, um, they found you know, something that they could be happy with in what I presented. And, um, and I have to say, they left me alone. Like the first day I had a PR person follow me around the building. The second day, she was only there for half of the day and the third day there was no one. And I was just like opening doors and uh, knocking on doors saying, hi, uh, I'm doing a film and just like pretty much um, going everywhere. You were inside the hive, so they sort of didn't notice you anymore. Yeah. We, we saw just before, I mean, for, for those who haven't seen the film, the scene that we just saw, many of those people have not been in the building for the eight weeks. This is, well, despite the fact this is at the end of the eight weeks putting the collection together, these seem to be people who were brought in because they were able to come and help at the last minute. They seemed incredibly comfortable instantly with the camera being around them. There was no sort of, no quick glances to the camera. They all seemed to just ignore you. How do you, how, how do you achieve that so quickly? How do you become the the invisible camera in the room? 
Well, I mean, we shot 270 hours, so I think there's a lot of uh, footage where they actually look at the camera, but uh, we didn't use it. <laughs> but, um, but also, it's just like being, um, being in the corner and observing, being a fly on the wall, that's, that's one part of it. But also, I think they were thrown in this situation um, of having to produce a... Everyone, everybody was incredibly stressed out and uh, on the edge because of the circumstance of having to meet the new designer and in the way in a way the camera was much less of a you know they didn't notice it as much because they they were already so focused on doing their job meeting Raf Simmons um, being able to listen to him and and um, there was electricity in the air and then I think that's why the camera sort of took second place in a way and that scene is with one of the atelier and, or actually it's not just with one of the dressmakers, no, well, I apologize, I'm not sure who qualifies as an atelier and there's a, there are atelier and then there are chiefs above them, is that, two chiefs above them, is that right? You have two head seamstresses, yeah, yeah. who are like uh, the chiefs so, of the atelier. Yeah. So that was one of the atelier with some assistance, is that correct? Well, actually it was, um, some of them are seamstresses, most of them are uh, uh, interns yeah. who work with the, the man with the bald head is um, the head of embroidery, so he manages all the embroidery orders and um, and making it's a beautiful job because he works with uh, the oldest houses in Paris um, like Urel or something like that and they and they they propose some designs and then Raf uh, modifies the designs or suggests other designs and then he has them produ produced this and is what I was going to ask about is there the film focuses as much if not more on the atelier and that process of the design, the, the fashion being made. For a film notionally about Raph, I was surprised how, how often he's out of the film for some time. Did you know going in that that was going to be the case? Was that, a, was that something you discovered about the film as you went? Well, I always, I always wanted it to be part of the film, for sure, because um, I've, I had been thinking a lot about collaboration and sort of people working in the shadow and acknowledging those people because it's, it's, um, there are a lot of parallels between fashion and film. And, and um, I know that, you know, I've worked in the shadows before and I, I, I know that it, it's not only one man's work, usually it's just a, a team effort. And um, I wanted to reflect that and talk about that. And, um, and I was surprised to find at Dior that people were, people had a very thoughtful and creative approach to what they're doing. You know, the, the, um, the seamstresses who talked about how much of themselves they put into the design and, and then how sad they are at the end to let it go. And, you know, I was really, it really touched me those, because you, you don't really, you don't really expect that so much from, from the seamstresses. You just assume that um, Raph Simmons has uh, the most intense creative journey, but really it's, it's, it's not, it's, in reality, everyone is involved uh, very emotionally. Turning then to, to Raph, he, I mean, he is already under incredible pressure coming in, having to do his collection in eight weeks. You talked about being the, the fly on the wall camera, but I mean, the old, there's a, I can't claim, you know, the originality of this, but there's a beautiful phrase about the difference between the, the documentary team going from being fly on the wall to fly in the soup. And that notion that the presence of a documentary crew has to add pressure to him, particularly to a man who is, as, as you said and as he articulates in the film, so uncomfortable being examined. 
did you did you feel that you were affecting him at any stage of the process? I think so. I think it was affecting him. I think he, you know, he's someone who's very humble, and I think he, when he took the job at Dior, he didn't expect all the changes it was going to have in his life. Like for the first um, three weeks, he was driving his car back to Antwerp every weekend like finishing at two in the morning and driving until five, until the management found out and they were like, you're crazy, you're gonna die on the road. We're, we're, we're getting you a chauffeur. But Raf was very, he's very humble. He doesn't, he didn't want a chauffeur. He, he didn't want the idea of a chauffeur, you know? And um, I think the same goes for being filmed and being in a documentary. I think he was, that's why he was reluctant in the beginning because he thought it was, um, he didn't want to be that person who has, who's being filmed. And um, he doesn't think of himself as more special than, you know, the seamstress or, or anyone else who's involved in the, in the making. And so, um, I don't know, I, I kind of lost track of your question, but... Well, <laughs> I was just wondering how you affected him. Did you, did you ever sense that he was self-editing in real life no. to try and not have something appear on camera? I don't think he was self-editing. Um, because we saw him blow up and, you know, mm -hmm. as you've seen the film a little bit and, and we saw him cry and we saw him, like, say things. But I think what I meant to say is that um, the camera was one more um, uh, symbol of how his life was changing. And I think, in a way, it added pressure to him, you know. But then when I talk to Raf now, he tells me that he doesn't remember the camera being there. We, he tells me, uh, you know, when I, right before the show, when I'm on the, on the terrace and I break down in tears, he's, he's, like, I, he's like, I really don't remember you being there with the camera. But you would have been the distance of me to you away. Yes, absolutely. And I was, um, actually, he looks at me right before he cries when he, um, so I, he was definitely aware, but I think he, you know, when, when you're in such an intense uh, situation, I think, um, you forget that you forget the cameras there because you have you've just too much to handle uh, already. So there's even a there is a moment when Raf starts discussing or he's ha being asked to do interviews and starts complaining about the prospect of there being cameras pointed at him, despite the fact he is currently has a camera pointed at him, <laughs> yeah. which demonstrates that you'd obviously you had become invisible. I'm curious what. Well, how much, what is the extent of the crew in the room? Was it just you? Were, were there a few of you? How many cameras were you operating with? Uh, we just had one camera, one camera on at, at any, except for the show where we had uh, like 10 cameras. But, but on a normal day, uh, we would have just one camera and um, that would be my cinematographer, Gilles Picard, or myself behind the camera, and then a sound person, usually uh, Virgil. And, um, so it's a fairly small crew, and uh, we tried to use lenses where you could be kind of far away, you know, uh, maybe a few meters away from the action. And, um, and so there was the, this, the boom pole, you know, just like reaching across the room. That's the most intrusive part, actually. The camera is not the most intrusive part. It's really the sound equipment that, that has to be close to the action in order to get the, the, the best quality. But... Um, yeah, we tried to be as small as possible. Raf or the other, uh, other seamstresses never met my producers who were always in another room. Um, and uh, so now it's funny that we had a screening in Paris and, you know, the, uh, the producers feel like they know all the characters, but 
nobody knows them from because nobody's seen them really. I try to be as discreet as possible. And so, did people note when you were in, atten in attendance? I mean, in some ways, you must have almost you know been it would be like the courtier, courtier arrives. Oh my God, Raf must be coming. Um, did, <laughs> did people suddenly think something must be happening? The, the camera crews arrived. No, because we were filming everything and nothing really. I mean, we would get there way before Raf entered the building. We would. We would arrive when the seamstresses arrived at 8 in the morning and, and um, spend some time. You know, we're, we're constantly in the elevator. That's why we got this, this scene where the elevator gets stuck. And <laughs> because we're always going up and down. You know, down was the, the raft studio, up with the, was the atelier. And, um, and it was great to get both perspectives, you know, what was going on upstairs, what was going on downstairs. And, um, and so... Yeah, no, they, they, we were just filming. People were always wondering, like, what are you, you know, why do you film this? We would film just uh, any meetings, you know, that we thought was interesting or, or... Did you ever struggle to maintain your own objectivity? There's, there's obviously, the film has great affection for the people within it without trying to sort of help them out sort of thing. I mean, it, it almost must have been tempting in that final scene to sort of go, actually, look, I've got a couple of minutes I can help out as well. <laughs> No, I don't think that would um, be a, a service to them <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I touched any of these clothes. Do you have a method of making sure you stay outside the story, that you don't accidentally become too involved in it? It's never really been an issue for me. Uh, I know that for other filmmakers, the other, the other night I was seeing a Belgian documentary about two alcoholics, and the last scene is... One of them just uh, driving completely drunk, you know, on a motorcycle. And I wonder what I would do if I were the filmmaker there. But, but the, I mean, Raf got, never got drunk, so I, I, I don't know. I, nothing, like, nothing that was life-threatening was happening really on the shoot. It was just emotions, you know. So, yeah, of course you want to, you connect with people, you know. Uh, there's a lot of talking and exchanging, but it's... Uh, it's part of, uh, I don't see, I don't see a, a limit that I have to, you know. Raf obviously was aiming for his own, you know, good result. Were you always confident once you got past that, you know, once you were allowed to film in week two, were you always confident that you had the makings of a good film in it? There were, did you ever have doubts about whether you had the material for a good film? No, I was really stressed out, not, I mean, not to have the material, because when you shoot eight weeks, I mean, that's really not much. Even though the film had a structure sort of built into it, you know, the preparation of a show and then the show, I didn't know that it was going to be compelling enough to make actually a film. But the way the show happened and, and being backstage and, um, and uh, all the emotions that came with the show, I was, after the show, I was, I remember being very happy and, and my producer feeling like I would, you know, because he didn't really see it all, he was like, I, he told me, I can tell you're happy because, um, you know, I guess it went well. And, um, and then when we watched the show, yeah, it was clear that, you know, we had an ending and that was, that was the most important for us because Raf is always very, uh, is, for two weeks, for, for two months, he was very reserved. And so I was, I was wondering, like, how am I, how am I going to get into this, this person's care, uh, you know, uh, brain and, and really feel what he's feeling? And, um, 
and during the show it became very clear that we had a sort of emotional resolution. Do you, do you feel that the RAF we see in the film is a, a strong representation of the real-life RAF? Yes, I hope so. I mean, he, he's, told me that it, he's told me that he sort of saw himself in it. And, um, how, did you, how did you show the film to him? What was the process well, there? Well, that was pretty complicated. He was, uh, I wanted to fly to Paris to show the film to him directly because you always want to be there to answer questions or, uh, you know, because people usually freak out when they see themselves. But that's okay, Rasmus comes across as someone who wouldn't have an opinion <laughs> on many things. Yeah, obviously, he doesn't have any problems. Uh, but he, um, he refused. He was like, absolutely not. I'm, he's, he wanted a DVD to watch it in his living room by himself. And I understand because um, he, uh, I think he had a very emotional reaction. And, um, I mean, thankfully, he watched it right away and he texted me a very beautiful text message saying how touched he was by the film and that he cried during most of the viewing. And um, he was mostly surprised by how, how much of the emotion of, of, of those two months I captured. He, um, he didn't think it was um, possible to sort of uh, to relive these emotions, and he, he, he did. Has he since forsworn some behaviour? Has he sort of having witnessed himself for eight weeks changed his ways in any way? I don't think so. I mean, I think um, like he, talking to the other people in the studio, uh, it's still the same. And I'm pretty surprised actually. Every time I talk to people at Dior, I'm telling them like, oh, it must be much uh, easier now that you know several collections have passed and. You probably don't do all-nighters anymore, and uh, it's much easier. And, and they're like, no, absolutely not. And, and we, we still work, you know, weekends. We still work all night, and then we still cry at the show. And we, you know, it's like. So there's there's an op opportunity for a sequel at some point to discover <laughs> that he hasn't improved his methods at all. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. How about yourself? You your previous film was Valentina, the Last Emperor. Well, that's, uh, I was a co-editor and, and a co-producer on it. Yes. Were you, was, was this a natural progression for you? And on the flip side of that, were you worried you might suddenly become known as the fashion documentarian? Did you, how did you approach that decision? Well, um, for me, it was never really a question, but I guess for other people it is. But for me, it's, it's just about falling in love with the character, whether it's in fashion or whether he's a musician or, or something else. Um, it just so happened that after I got the opportunity to work on Valentino, The Last Emperor, I was approached to, uh, to work on something on uh, Diana Vreeland. And so I worked with um, uh, two co-directors co on, on making that film. And then that's, that's how um, I met Dior also at a, at a screening of, of Diana Vreeland. And um, so it just one thing leads to another and, and there... When you, when you see a story that you know you really want to make, I, I usually go really with my gut instinct, and usually there's no question, like, you, you fall in love with it, you just have to do it. It's, I mean, coming full circle, because you're saying that you were fascinated by the notion of Raph Simmons coming in. If they had gone in a different direction and appointed someone else, this just isn't a film you would have made, or would you have looked at it then and seen who it was, or...? I don't know, I don't know. Um, yeah, I was. I don't know how I would have reacted, 
but I was really dead set on Raf Simmons, yeah. It's a very, it is that step up to directing as well. Was that a very natural step for you? Did you find it easier to sort of take the reins and take control, or were you surprised by the change? I was change? incredibly scared, and I think that's what helped me make the film also, is that my, um, sort of my journey on this film, it was my first film as a solo director, um, so my journey sort of paralleled that of, of Raf in a very uh, smaller way, obviously, because, but, you know, I was put in a new situation, I mean, somewhat, situation somewhat familiar, but yet on a much more, uh, you know, bigger scale or more responsibilities. And so there's a, there's a healthy dose of fear, you know, that comes with that, and you, you don't know if you're really going to manage. And um, so that's why maybe I felt like this, I had to make this film, because it, it felt like... Uh, something that, 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 that was close to my heart. And then you, the show itself, the show that is the, the climax of this film, is almost, you were saying, two years ago today almost. That's a long time in the edit. Was, there, was, was, that a long, was the edit a, a longer process than you anticipated? Did you always see it taking that long? Um, well, yes, because when you shoot 270 hours, um, you usually have a really long time of editing. And we edited for about nine months or maybe a year. Well, you have intense editing for six months and then you start showing it to people and you do like slow um, changes, you know, like you, it's hard, the film is 95% there, but then you need to do little adjustments and then you have to submit to festivals and that takes time. And usually you wait for like six months for the festivals to the right festival to, to accept it. And, um, but editing has always been, um, yeah, to me it's the make or break of a documentary uh, because nothing's written in advance. I mean, you have a vague idea of where you want to go, but you really write it in the editing room. And did you go back and shoot any additional material? The, you've, there's a, I mean, most, obviously most of the film exists you know, in the moment. You can't go back to the time, but did you go back and shoot anything additional as a, as a pickup? Uh, we shot a scene at the museum um, as a pickup because uh, Raf wanted to go see one exhibit and, um, and I was like, oh, that could, be, that could really fit into the film. And so um, we used it, you know, up, during the making of the collection, he was kind of too busy, I think, to go to uh, museums. But, um, but it was nice to have that in the film to, to show his love, love of art. And was that something you'd always known you wanted to include, or was that as you did the edit, you realized that would work well there? Um, I, I was always pushing for it. Uh, you know, I was trying to go to galleries with him and, and, and do that. Um, you also have a very brief interview in there with a journalist, a fashion journalist, who is used to set up the universe, the, the, how the fashion world was viewing you know, Raf's appointment and the pressure right. on him. When did, was that something you, you shot later, or was that something you did during no, the time? I really wanted to shoot it before the show. It was really important for me because I wanted to be, you know, not knowing how, what the outcome was going to be. And of course, some journalists are uh, more agile than others at, at like putting themselves back in time and, and putting the sentence in the present instead of the past. But, but I didn't want to have that kind of uh, cheating. I really wanted. I wanted Kathy Horne to speak from uh, the perspective of not knowing how it was going to work out. And so we filmed it 
four days before the show because she was in Paris. She arrived in Paris for Couture Week and uh, we invited her um, and she gave, her, she gave us uh, the interview. So it was nice. And then we did a little bit of an interview after the show, which we ended up not including. And there's very limited, although, I mean, really, there's no other interviews in the, in the film. There's a very occasional sort of throwaway line sort of thing. Did you, did you shoot interviews with any of the key people? Did you, the people within Dior, did you, did you ever consider doing that? Yeah, no, we shot, um, we shot interviews with all the key players because uh, it was important for me to uh, know how they felt and sometimes you don't really necessarily see it or, uh, you know, in the, in the action. Um, so we, sh we shot just the key people, Raph Simmons, Peter Mullier's right-hand man. Um, um, we shot the two head seamstresses, Florence and Monique, the director of uh, Haute Couture, Catherine Rivière, who manages the atelier. And uh, that's pretty much it. And the, the CEO of Dior, that's, mm. that's it. And did you, were they, was it a strong chance of them getting in? When did you decide to just let more of the action talk than letting the, the interviews do the heavy lifting? Um, I always wanted the action to speak for itself as, as much as it could. And, um, and then that's why in the film you, you see the interviews uh, being used in the beginning much more. It's, it's used to, to bring context, to bring um, enough information set so that then you can let the action roll. It's... You know, the editing room is that beautiful time when you're looking over the past and staring at it. Was there ever a moment where you... I suppose, is there anything, given the chance, that you could go back and speak to yourself just before this began? Is there any advice? You know, make sure you're in that room then, or whatever you do, don't do this film. Um, is there, is there <laughs> any, are there any decisions that you'd go back and, and try and sort of change, or you, did it work as well as you could hope? Um, no, I don't know what I would change. I mean, maybe... Uh... No, I, I, I think the film pretty much turned out the, unexpectedly the way I imagined it before we started. I mean, it's kind of amazing when it happens, but, um, um, but maybe I would tell myself to relax a little bit because I was really stressed out during the whole shoot, even though my crew was very relaxed. They had like uh, three of my producers had babies uh, that they made during the filming. You know, so I was not getting much sleep, but they were, <laughs> they were not getting sleep either, but <laughs> different reasons. I think at this point, I, I mean, I will keep going, given the opportunity. However, there are a great deal of people here who obviously would be interested in uh, asking some questions. So uh, we have microphones that will come and find you. If you have a question, put up your hand. There's a question just here. Uh, and a microphone has found oh, you. I, um, I just want to ask a question about the fashion parade with all those flowers. And was that very difficult to shoot? The the the, the final the, show. The final show. I mean, it was an extraordinary was, building that they had. It that was a little bit in. difficult to film because um, you have about you know a, a podium this size with about um, twenty five cameras into it, and so they mark with like with tape like little corners for each crew. And they gave us a corner about this big, you know, like really just two square feet at the most. And, um, and so we had to choose the best angle, but had, I didn't want it to look like any other fashion footage that you see on TV. 
and yet we're staying in the same place, sort of. So we, my uh, DP for the show, th this Frenchman, uh, very talented, called Leo Instin, suggested that we use slow motion. And we had this like really uh, high-end camera that could do beautiful slow motion. And we lowered, lowered the camera just slightly so that it, it, would, it was a different angle that you're used to see. And, um, and then we placed other cameras, you know, in other rooms. And uh, I wanted to, usually you just see the runway, but I was also interested in seeing the hallway and seeing, you know, um, the backstage and, and sort of weaving everything together. So I tried to make it as organic as possible, you know. In that scene, one of the things we get to see is Anna Winter getting a, a brief tour of the room. Do you just follow him with the camera and hope that Anna Winter doesn't suddenly turn around and go, no, I've already got a documentary? Or how do you, how do you get permission to, to no, capture... No, I mean, first you have... We were connected to um, uh, the communication team, uh, sort of um, uh, whatever, the walkie-talkies, or talkie-walkies, I can't remember. And, um, and so suddenly you hear, Anna Winter is coming, Anna... People scream in the thing, like, you know. And so the whole team suddenly rushes down to the stairs to welcome Anna Wintour. And so there's no way to miss it. You know Anna Wintour is coming. <laughs> and, um, and then you try to get the, the camera down there. And uh, she was very gracious. I mean, she had like bodyguards and everything, but you know, we, we were able to film. And uh, she's seen the film. She, she gave us uh, her blessing and she really liked it. So yeah, it's, it's been good. Have we got any other questions in the room? If you've got a question, now's a good time to put up your hand. There's a question there. And there's one down here. We have questions everywhere. Can you tell us a bit about your influences, documentary filmmakers, and other documentaries that influence you and the film? Um, well, I've always liked observational documentaries. Like the Maisels brothers are really my um, film gods. Um, films like um, you know, Grey Gardens or um, <clears throat> Gimme Shelter about the Rolling Stones. They always have a way of letting the action speak and not being, having a relationship with the characters that's very human. It's not judgmental, it's not necess necessarily uh, critical or too loving, it's kind of in between. I, I really like that. And then, um, for this one, I really thought about Frederick Wiseman a lot because of his, his way of just looking at an institution from the top to the bottom, from, a, you know, really a cross-section of society through a place and time. And um, I was interested in doing that. We have a question down here and a microphone heading towards you now. Uh, I was impressed with the cinematography. How did you get on with the lighting? Were you using the existing lighting or did you have it all set up before we in each scene? Yeah, we never had any uh, lighting at all. We would... Well, because, I mean, you know, I wanted to be as inintrusive in as possible and when you light a big light on top of a, a camera, it's, um, it changes. It changes your your presence in the in the room, so we never used. We're I mean I, that's why I chose a camera that um, was able to shoot in all situations, even if it was a little dark. You were talking before about uh, showing the film to Anna Winter and and having shown it to Raf. Of course, you've, this is the third festival you've shown the film, 
and that, that is your own equivalent of the show. How have, how have you handled right. those moments? I mean, how was the premiere of your first film as a solo director? Well, it was, it was, it was very um, weird because I felt like I was in Raph's shoes, like doing the same kind of... Um, Did you get someone to come and follow you with a camera so you could really experience the moment? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, it was stressful and there was a, a strong parallel between... Uh, you know, I think every creative process is the same. You know, you, it's, a, it's a lot of effort to get there, working with a lot of people, and then suddenly you have to present it and you have to get response on it, and that's really scary. I mean, thankfully, it worked out really nicely because I had my family there. Uh, it was a very warm environment, and, and people, I think, really responded to the film in, in ways that I'd, uh, you know, I hadn't anticipated, very passionate response. And um, so it's, it's been really good. I'm losing my chance. Frederick's just drop, dropping a dollar fifty because he thinks, <laughs> he knows that I'm a journalist, so I can be bought very cheaply. <laughs> um, that's obviously a big event. You'd mentioned that you showed the film to different people during the edit and then the various people we've mentioned. Was there a particularly daunting screening for you? Was there one where, was, did one of those uh, during edit screenings, did you get notes that did change the film? Um, yes, I mean, I did. Um, I showed it to Bob Eisenhardt, who was the editor on uh, Valentino, The Last Emperor, that I collaborated, he was the, f he, he was my mentor, basically, in film editing, because I co-edited the film and he edited it, and he had really um, smart things to say. He, he really shaped the beginning of the film, because he told me, you know, he showed me just how you could build um, more, uh, more drama and, like, bring out exactly what Raph was about, what Joe was about, and how the next 90 minutes we were going to see was going to be a challenge, you know. And so I'm really grateful for that. Other than that, um, two weeks ago we had a screening for the Simstresses in Paris, and that was really daunting. And um, there was the first time that they saw the film. You, they always complained to me every time I went back to Paris. They're like, oh, we'll never see your film, because it's, you know, we always have camera crews come in, and then we never see the result. And uh, so I was happy to prove them wrong and, uh, and show it to them, and they had they, they were very moved by it. I mean, they were, they, a lot of them cried. Um, Monique, the, the sort of anxious uh, seamstress, she was like, we have to talk. <laughs> and then she started laughing and we went to lunch together. Um, I, th I think the, the best compliment that they made to me was that they really recognized every personality, even a seamstress that would be on screen just for uh, 15 seconds. I, they, they're like, oh, that's exactly how she sounds and how, what, you know, she's always complaining or that one is always cheerful. And so I'm, I'm happy because I didn't really, um, you know, I didn't know them that well. I just knew them for two months, you know, but, uh, but they thought that the film was faithful. Are there any other questions in the room? No, in which case, what's, look, we're, we're sadly reaching towards the end of our time. What's next to you? Are you going to slowly work through the fashion houses of the world with a, a film on each of them? Or what is the, <laughs> what, what, what's next for you? Um, I think I'm, uh, right now I'm working on a um, narrative screenplay, so I'm, and it doesn't have anything to do with fashion. So I think, I mean, I've, I've done three films on fashion, or I've worked on three films. 
So it's a kind of a trilogy. I think it's good. I can move on to something else, maybe, uh, and maybe documentary. Um, you know, documentary. Uh, I'll I'll put on hold for for a bit and try my hand at fiction. I think that I'm interested in doing that. What came first for you, an interest in documentary or an interest in fashion? Oh, an interest in film. Not necessarily documentary, an interest in, in film, definitely. Fashion came, uh, I mean, it's, I have an interest, but I'm not, it's not my passion. Well, it's always nice to make your last question the question about how you got into the industry. So, um, <laughs> how, did, how did it come about? How did you find yourself making a trilogy of documentaries then about fashion? Well, um, I... Um, I was trained as a civil engineer <laughs> in Paris. I was trained as a lawyer, so we're well placed. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but surprisingly enough, the, the engineering school I went to is also um, the school of um, uh, Jean Rouge, a very uh, brilliant French filmmaker who uh, made films in the 50s, 60s, about mainly in Africa. So I guess there was um, some um, genealogy there. And, um, but after, after uh, engineering school, I took a break and I, um, I applied to film school. And uh, I got in Columbia University, so I studied there. And at the end of it, I, uh, I was working on my thesis uh, project. Trying, I was a little stuck with uh, writing a screenplay. And, and my friend Matt Cap, who's a, a, a producer, asked me to help out on the Valentino um, um, shoot, which was just starting. It was the first shoot, and it happened in Paris, and I was French, and so he was like, why, why don't you start? And I started as a production assistant, basically. And, um, but then when we got back to New York, I started editing the footage we had shot, and I got along with the director, and so I slowly uh, gained more responsibility. And that's how I got into documentary. I wasn't really... Um, interested in documentary more than that. I mean, it's not that I was not interested. I, was, I, I didn't know much about documentary. And so I had to do like a, a little bit of a crash course. And, uh, but, but suddenly, I was, it, it was very liberating, documentary, because fiction, you often uh, feel like you have to be this kind of god over the, the world that you create. And, um, and that was... Um, that felt a little too much responsibility for me, or, to, or uh, and um, I like what I found in documentary that the world is there f just for you to look at. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm a very contemplative person, I guess. Um, so that was perfect for m f for me as a way to enter the. the f it gave me much more uh, confidence. And did you ever go back and finish that final work uh, for your student? No, days? I did not, no. <laughs> well, look, you were obviously a great disappointment to your parents then. Um, no, no, but Valentino ended up being my uh, graduation Oh, good, thesis. excellent. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, look, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please thank Frederick Cheng. And if you haven't, please go out and see Joe and I, which is a spectacular documentary. Thank, thank you very you much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.